So we've been doing these uh, metaphors because I've asked two questions of our congregation. The two questions I've asked are this, do you have a relationship with God? And if so, what does that relationship look like? And so we've been spending a lot of time answering those two questions, and we've had these metaphors we've used to talk about what Scripture offers for how people can relate to God. And then last, year, last week we talked about sin and how sin actually means to turn in on yourself, okay? And so repenting means to turn from that. So that's kind of where we are so far. So here's where I am today. If, if we are all to entertain the idea of having a relationship with God, then it would make sense to me that we have some basic understanding of who God is. If you're sitting here and you have rejected God, uh, then that's fine. I guess my question I would ask is, what God have you rejected? Or maybe you say you follow God. I have the same question. What God are we following? Is it the same God that we gave our heart to maybe at nine years old, but now we're 50? Are we still following that concept and understanding of God? And so I think it kind of bears some thinking for us to begin to understand who this God is. Let's be honest. If anybody is going to ask me to live my life for them or with them, I'm going to think about that. Fair? We ought to put our minds to that to try to figure out if this is a God we actually want to give our life to. That's just good sense in my mind. So this is the first thing that we need to understand about God as we get into this message, which is a fork and knife kind of sermon. It's not going to be, (laughs) this isn't going to be an easy one. But if we get into this message, it's the first thing we all need to understand about God, not just in salvation, but also in his call to holiness and his call to the deeper life. And here's what you need to understand about God. God allows us to reject him. You, you are allowed to do that. That's why some of you can sit in this room and you say, I've walked away from God, or I'm not God's, or I've chosen not to be with God. That's because he gave you that freedom. You have that ability, that decision. God's not a dictator. God doesn't kick the door down in our lives and force us to do what he wants us to do. God will not make us enter into any kind of relationship with him because God has given us the freedom Now, let me prove that to you. You think back to some poor decisions you've made in your life. For some of you, it was several years ago. For others of you, several months. And some of you, last night. Some poor decisions that you made in your life. You think back. Now, come on, do it with me. Think back on those things. Maybe it was to have one more before you you decide to get behind the wheel. Maybe you pursued a relationship you shouldn't have. Maybe you, you, you clicked on something you shouldn't have. Maybe it was a decision to not forgive somebody and you're holding on to that. Well, Those memories are your greatest evidence that this God has given you freedom to choose what you want. You follow? That's how you can know that's true. Because you can choose what you want to do. You're here because you chose to. Well, that's freedom. God's allowed you to do that. Now, here's the thing. What we can all give testimony to, no matter where we currently stand with God, is this. God allows us to choose him or to choose to reject him. Now, here's the thing. Believers, God also allows us to choose to go deeper in our relationship with him or to choose not to. That's why we're not all cookie cutter in the room. That's why we all relate to God at different levels. That's why all of us know God at a different level of intimacy, Some of us in the room were content to kind of have the forgiveness piece happen, and then that's all we really need from God. And so how you relate to God is primarily there. 
Others in the room, you are deeply challenged and drawn into the idea of God being your identity, the core part of who you are. And so you have made the choice to pursue holiness and pursue that, but that's not true for everybody because you have freedom to choose. I have freedom to choose. Now, here's the thing. Even after we have made choices that we wanted to make for our entire lives, even after we've made choices that piled up shame, piled up regret, and sinned our whole lives, even after we've done that, we can still come to a point in our lives where we choose God, where we choose him, choose to, to kind of take our freedom and use our freedom and our choice and begin to build a relationship or a deep, devout love with God. The thief on the cross did that. Y'all remember that story? Jesus is dying on the cross, and the one thief on the other there, he says, hey, uh, I don't know if he said, hey, but he said, he said uh, you know, will you remember me when you go into your kingdom? And Jesus said something like, well, today you'll be with me in paradise. After a whole life of making choices that he wanted, he made a final choice, his freedom, on that cross. And he did. Now, if we have the power to choose, if you're buying what I've said so far, and if we have the power to relate to God or not to relate to God, and if we have the power to determine how deep and intimate we will relate to God, then there are two questions that I think we should have answers to. If you're going to consider going into a deep relationship with God, the two questions I would want to know is this, what is God like and what's he want with me? Is that fair? What is God like? If I'm going to give my whole life to him, what's he like? I mean, I'm getting beyond, okay, he's a little shepherd, a little baby in a manger. I'm getting beyond that. He is those things, but I'm talking about beyond that. I'm 50 years old, and I'm older than that, but I'm 50 years old right now, and, and I, I want to know what's he like. And then here's the second thing. What's he want to do with me? I think those are questions we ought to have answers to before we go any further. Here's why. Scripture says, everybody in the room, everybody you drove by on the way here was made in his image. And if that's true, I want to know what that is. Let me say it another way. God made us individually to be like him. What does that mean? I mean, do you know how long I poured over the idea of asking Lise to marry me? Two, three seconds, probably. I mean, no, it was a long time, right? We all made decisions, and we prayed about it, and we said, man, God, you know, is this the one? And God's like, do you see her? You know, ask quick, Tom, before she catches on. You know, so that's kind of that moment. <laughs> but we all did. We thought about it. We think, man, I'm going to spend my life with this person, you know, maybe have a family, whatever. And yet we don't do the same when it comes to God. Are you kidding me? So let's do that. And I think it's vitally, vitally important that I learn what the Heavenly Father's like so I can gain some insight into what he's trying to do in me, what he's making me into. And so to get at this discussion, I want to take you to two writers in the, in the Scripture. Both start with J, uh, Jeremiah and then John. So Jeremiah is this weeping prophet he's called. Like he's, <laughs> he's depressing. He's doom and gloom guy, okay? Think Eeyore in prophet clothes, okay? That's who Jeremiah is. In fact, just read it for yourself. I mean, you, you just kind of, <laughs> you're going to want to jump off a bridge. I mean, he, he, he's really tough. 
But toward the beginning of the book, Jeremiah records this series of messages. And it wasn't just Jeremiah's fault. I mean, he had some tough messages to deliver. And he, and he delivers this series of messages that sometimes people will call the temple messages. And he concludes these temple messages like, with the words that I'm going to share with you here in a second. Because in this conclusion, Jeremiah gives some stunning insight into our first question of who's God or what is God like. And so if you will kind of lean in and work with me through this first part, I think we'll get some insight into who's God like and as a result, who we are. So John chapter, Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 1. Now, pay attention to the highlights because uh, I've got to jump to a couple other scriptures, but I want you to remember the highlighted part. Fair? Hello? Yeah. Okay. Uh, the smart people will remind us what it was. Okay, so just stay with them. Look, look for, hear what the Lord says to you, O house of Israel. Just for clarity, we're talking to the people of God. Who's the message to? People of God. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the sky. Though the nations are terrified by them, don't you be terrified by them. For the customs of the peoples are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest, Jeremiah writes, and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. Then they cover it up with silver and gold. They nail it down with a hammer so it doesn't totter, which I think is a cool word. I'm going to use that a lot this week. Like a scarecrow in a melon patch, their idols cannot speak. They, the idols, must be carried because they cannot walk. And then Jeremiah says to God's people, don't be afraid of them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. Now remember, this message is to the house of Israel. The house of Israel, just for clarity, did involve some pagan people, but it also involved some people who followed Yahweh, uh, like us. It involved both. It involved the community of God. So what was happening is, the people of Israel, pagan people of God, who didn't know the true God, would make something up to take his place. And Jeremiah's going after that with intensity. They stand him up like a scarecrow in a melon patch. Is not how you win friends and influence people back in Jeremiah's day. We have to have what Jeremiah is saying. We, people, have to have an object to worship. And what Jeremiah is criticizing is saying, he's saying this, you people have become desperate worshipers. I'll say it to you like this. We are so desperate to believe that something is bigger than our problems, bigger than our guilt and shame, that we will go into the woods and cut down a tree and worship it. Now, this is a massively huge insight of what it means to be made in God's image and it says something about how God created us and how, who God is. And this is what I want to share. Humanity is innately or naturally religious. In other words, we must have a God. It's part of the human race. We have to have something to worship, even if it is each other or ourselves or an ideal, or an idea. And we may not go in the woods and cut it out of a tree anymore, 
but we still construct something to worship. Doesn't that sound familiar? Let me, let me put a little more butter to bread here. Anybody ever tried to substitute God and didn't know it? Anybody tried looking for love in all the wrong places like the Bible, country music song says? <laughs> Anybody climbed the ladder to find out when you got to the top it wasn't what you hoped it would be? Anybody retire well only to discover you lived poorly? Anybody trying self-medication? Anybody trying to numb? Anybody trying to break the monotony of the numbness with some kind of destructive behavior? This is what Jeremiah's point is. You have to have something to worship. And in our culture, that something to worship probably has something to do with success and finances and money and all the things that it can, it can create. Or maybe it's perfectionism. Or maybe it's... Or maybe it's an acceptance no matter the cost. We all have to have something to worship, Jeremiah is saying. And then he provides some insight into this God who is our Father. Idols, he says, we create ourselves. Not so with the Heavenly Father. Jeremiah says there's not another God like us. Why? Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 6. No one is like you, God. You are great. Your name is mighty in power. Mighty in what? How about that? Anybody need that this week? Yeah, me neither. Who should not revere you, he says, or king of the nations? Who shouldn't shouldn't worship you? This is your due among all the wise people of the nations and in all their kingdoms. There is nobody like you. God says you can't touch this. That's what God is saying right there. Jeremiah is saying about God. There is no one like you. He is the true God while everything else is false. He's the living God while everything else has to be carried around and nailed down so it doesn't totter. Jeremiah then says something that stands in stark contrast to every created idol that's ever been. And he says this, God made the earth by his power. No other God says that. Nobody says that about another God. Only this one. Only only God Almighty, only Yahweh. You didn't have to dig this God out of the woods. You didn't have to take a chisel to this God. You didn't have to coat this God in some kind of precious metal so he had more valuable than a, value than a hunk of wood. You didn't have to form this God up in your mind and form a committee to figure out what this God was going to look like. You didn't have to place the God on a pedestal so everybody could see him. You didn't have to put this God on wheels so you could move him to wherever he needed to be, whenever he needed to be there. No, this is God, this father of ours, this one that we've been called to worship and to enter into a relationship, made everything that exists. Look at that person to your, right beside you. Go ahead, take a look. See that? God made that. Don't make any comments on what you think about it. But God made that. According to what the Bible says, God made that. I should say him or her, but whatever. He made the trees and the grass you see when you, when you came up the drive to this place, when you left your house. He made the sun, thought, wow, that's going to be a little overwhelming. So he slapped the beautiful sky around it and then speckled the expanse with clouds. He made that air you're breathing right now. Everything in your life, God made it all. He is the only God who is called the creator the one that is inviting us into this deep, intimate relationship with him. And then Jeremiah 
provides one more insight into this Father who is inviting us into relationship so we can understand who He is. He reminds us that this Father didn't have to be created. It's a big deal. Everything else had to be created, but not God. This is the Old Testament version of the New Testament's Alpha and Omega. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 14. This is what Jeremiah says. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. In other words, everybody who built an idol at some point is going to be embarrassed by it. His images are a fraud, and you're going to find out they have no breath in them. They're worthless. The objects of mockery. When their judgment comes, they'll perish. But he who is the portion of Jacob, Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, the one you've been invited into relationship with, is not like these. Why do you say that, Jeremiah? Because he is the maker of all things. And then Jeremiah says it, including you people, including Israel, the tribe of his inheritance, the Lord Almighty is his name. So this God that's inviting us into a relationship made this world, and he still exercises his will in this world. Not only is he the creator, but he's also sovereign Lord. And all the reflection on who the Heavenly Father is leads us to this monstrous conclusion for Jeremiah that provides this life-changing insight into life, I think, into my life as a member of the human race. Here's Jeremiah's conclusion. I know, O Lord, that a man's life. I'm going to pause here long enough to say this. In the Hebrew, this is Adam, and this is Ish. What that means is, this is meant for the human race. This is meant for the individual. Follow? So I'm going to read it to you like Tom would translate it, which is probably wrong, but I'm all we've got right now. Okay. I know, O Lord, that humanity's life is not their own. It's not for a person to direct his or her steps. You think about it. Part of being made in the image of God is everybody in the room has these goals and purposes. And what Jeremiah is saying is we all have purposes and goals to get somewhere but have no idea how to get there. Read it for yourself. We all have these ideas but we don't have the ability it is not for Tom to direct his steps. Why should I enter into a relationship with God? According to what Scripture says, and this flies directly in the face of everything we're all chasing, (laughs) we cannot direct our own steps. There must be a way for us to live But apparently, we cannot determine that in and of ourselves. Let me make it a little more specific. There must be a way for us to stay married. There must be a way for us to raise our kids. There must be a way for us to deal with loss or grief. There must be a way for us to deal with tension in relationships. But we will never find it in and of ourselves. We can bust ourselves trying to carve out this life that we wanted or we thought we wanted. 
And we will come to the point of realizing it was never the life we were supposed to live. And this explains why humans have to have something to worship, at least for me. This explains why we create something to worship if we cannot find God. It explains why we can go to unreached groups of people and even in their societal norms, they have set up something to worship. Jeremiah is saying, all of us are looking for a dependable guide to get us through this life. And perhaps most importantly, without that guide, we are completely and utterly lost. Are you saying I can't retire well without God? No, 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 no. That's not at all what I'm saying. You can probably retire well without God. But what we are saying is to live for what you were created to live for, you cannot do without God. We are not self-sufficient despite what we're all trying to fool ourselves into thinking, <laughs> including this pastor. Despite what culture is trying to teach us that if we can put enough in the bank, pay off our cars, pay off our houses, then nothing will be able to touch this. Despite all that, when we turn inward and away from God, we lose our direction and end up lost. Now, I believe in a God who made me in his image. I believe that. And I believe that I'm dependent on God because he made me in that image or the image I share with him. In other words, part of being made in the image of God is being created with a deep-seated understanding, listen, that to be a person means to be oriented toward someone else. Now, I know, grab the fork, grab the knife. The longer I live, the more I understand that actually being a person means I'm incomplete. And that's not what I want to buy, but I think it's true. What do you mean by that? Well, let's throw this. We're not self-originating. In other words, you didn't think yourself up and then go, poof, here I am. If you want to know where you came from, ask your parents. You're not self-originating. I know we all want to believe that, but we're not. We all started in someone else's body. Think about that for a while. I'll give you the heebie-jeebies. You didn't, you didn't choose to live. You were given life, right? You weren't self-originating. How about this? We're not self-sustaining. We're not. Most of us have to eat three times a day. Some of us six or eight. Eighteen times a minute we have to breathe air in because we need oxygen to live. Some of you need to step the pace up a little bit because I'm worried about you. If that flow of oxygen is cut off, you die. You're welcome. We're not self-explanatory. What do you mean by that? There's no such thing as a typical human being. I'll prove it to you. Turn around and look at your neighbor's nose. Where'd that thing come from? You know what I'm saying? How about the wardrobe we're all wearing? How about how we're all wearing our hair or lack thereof? That a boy, Chad. <laughs> Brian, what are you laughing at? <laughs> yeah, me too. We're all doing that, right? We all made some decisions about that. We're all unique. 
And the only way we're ever going to understand the human race, you, you have to have a male and a female because we all are distinct. We weren't, we're not self-explanatory. We need each other to understand each other. Scriptures tell us that we're also not self-fulfilling. Every human being thinks if I can live the way I want to live, I'll be happy. And the beginning of Scripture to the end says, that's a lie. Adam and Eve thought in the garden as they sought out the forbidden fruit, we believe if we can have it our way, we'll be happy, which is the supreme lie to the human race. We will always want something more because you were created to find fulfillment outside of you, outside of yourself. You'll never find it in here. It'll be with others. And that's, that's what makes us all like Jesus. Now I'm really going to push on you because I'm going to talk about Jesus. We're made in his image. Jesus said, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Who granted the Father's life? Who did it? Who granted the Son's life? The Father. Look at The Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Jesus, the Son of God, did not give himself life. He can raise us from the dead, but his own life comes from the Father. You know what that means? Jesus is not self-originating either. Jesus is not self-sustaining either. Again, the book of John, chapter 5, Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. Jesus is not self-explanatory. Jesus always identifies himself as the son of the father. He's not here on his own. He was sent by the Father. Get this. Jesus isn't self-fulfilling either. I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. Who's the Father? And what does he want with me? Now you're ready to hear it. The same thing we see in the life of the Son of God, the same thing we see in Jesus is what God desires for us. In the book of John, the word sent is used 40 different times, or some form of the word sent. In fact, in John chapter 8, verse 16 and 18, Jesus uses a powerful phrase to describe his father. He refers to his father as the sending me father. The sending me father. And this blows your brain. Jesus is doing what the sending me father asks him to do. Jesus said he came to do the will of him who sent me. That's what Jesus said. The main character in the book of John isn't Jesus. It's the father who sent Jesus. And the stunner is Jesus says we're supposed to be like him. And he wasn't self-originating, self-sustaining, self-explanatory, self-fulfilling either. This is no longer Sunday school stuff. This is not cotton candy Christianity, and it's not casual faith. 
How can I reach a place where I'm willing to release my life and let it be poured out for someone else like Jesus? This will require something a whole lot more than just being forgiven for my sins. I, we can only be like Jesus when he gets us to the place where the Father can spend us as he wills. Now, this is a challenge to how some of us live our faith because faith has been all about this for us. But if you look at what Jesus does in the Gospel of John, Jesus' whole life was all about, Lord, send me wherever you want me to be. Burn this thing out for your good and your glory. Spend this life. Spend all that I have and don't have. And this is exactly where we are as a church right now. Two years ago, I became convicted about our church because I was afraid that we were focusing on getting bigger. And I realized that getting bigger did not necessarily mean we were being who God has called us to be. And so I spent some time with the Lord, and leadership spent time with the Lord, and we felt that God was calling us to live and to raise up spend-me kind of leaders, use-me kind of leaders. And so we've changed so many different things. We asked our community to step up and to live missional lives. We changed how we do mission work, and we sent 60-some people to a mission field this past year. We changed how we do discipleship. In fact, right now, we are going through our, the graduates are getting ready to come out of the fourth D of our working through that thing. And the point of those four Ds that we, we entered into the discipleship, discovery, deepen, uh, def- define, and then decide. The point of those four Ds is that you will walk out ready to say, spend me. And we're getting ready to release our first set of graduates to whatever God has designed them to be. A few weeks, we're going to open up that place over there and the children to make room for our children's ministry that we think will be part of that missional thing that God has called us to do as a community. See, vision is the easiest part to sell. Visions are a dime a dozen. Everybody has a vision. And people will sit there and they'll nod and say, yeah, I like that vision. That's a good vision. It's got a great bumper sticker. But here's how you know if a vision really is sinking into one's life. Vision actually has two more parts to it. The first part is the vision. The second part is when people say, I'll commit to that vision. Yeah, God wants me to be, spend me, Father. But when you'll commit to that, spend me, Father. I know who you are, and I want to spend the rest of my life. That's, that's one level. And then the third level is when we'll sacrifice for God to do that. So let me ask you, what part of it are you buying into? You're here, so there has to be some kind of vision going on. And you're, some of you are committed. I mean, I see you. But are you sacrificing? The future of the church is dependent on men and women who understand the call is to actually take your hands off your life so that your heavenly Father can spend you as he wills and spend me as he wills. And when that begins to happen... People will wonder about how a group of people can live so selflessly, so in pursuit of God, so hungry for depth and power and the sweetness of holiness, and they'll wonder, and that is where the Son, Jesus, will become the answer because we're trying to be like Him. Your gifts won't accomplish this. Your good looks won't accomplish this. 
Your connectedness and network and who you know will not accomplish it. Your net worth will not accomplish it. Your skills won't accomplish it. Only you going before the Father in self-sacrifice will actually make a difference in our world. That's the only place. Only the cross will set us free from sin that holds us back. And only the cross will be the shining example of what it means to live a spend-me kind of life. Ten years ago, I don't know, longer than I can remember, church was hard. Lisa and I were slap wore out. And so the people over the church said, hey, you guys need to get out of town for a while. So they sent us out of town to the beach. I'm feeling a little slap worn out right now if you all want to get another idea. This will be fine. We'll go. Okay. <laughs> Uh, we're at the beach and we're seeking God together and saying, man, I know we're going to survive it and hard and all that stuff. And just change was tough, you know. Change was tough and I had so much to learn and all that. And um, I was in my time alone with the Lord. And uh, so the Lord, this is a tattoo story. So this is really going to be controversial. So if, if you don't believe in tattoos as Christians, send me an email at idontcare.com. So in a way, um, <clears throat> the, I, I know, I know it's a big deal for some people. So we're at this the beach, and um, in my time with the Lord, the Lord reminded me of the theme verse that he gave me when he called me to ministry. And the theme verse is actually from John chapter 17, verse 4. It's where Jesus prays for us. And what he said was to the Father, he said, I brought you glory on the earth by accomplishing the things you gave me to do. Remember that? And so, as I was before the Father and complaining about all the things that I really couldn't control and all the hurt I was feeling, blah, 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 the Lord brought that verse back. So I said, Lisa, hey, I'm going to go get this verse tattooed on my wrist so I can always see it. That's why it's where it is, so that I see it more than you see it. At first, I just had him put John 17:4, but then people started asking me who John was which was a whole different agenda than what I was trying to. <laughs> so uh, we were in San Diego at some other thing, and I had a guy put a banner around it, and I haven't had, don't send us out of town. We're going to come back with ink. <laughs> but anyway, that's kind of what happened. It, and it's kind of where I am right now. And I want to ask you very specifically, Are you bringing God glory by accomplishing the things he wants you to do or not? That's the question. You know who God is. You know what he wants to do. And the only way you will bring God glory by accomplishing the things he wants you to do is by your choice to surrender to him. That's it. And that will be one of the most difficult things we'll ever do in our lives. <laughs> Are you bringing God glory through your marriage, through your children, through your finances, through your position, through your occupation? Are you bringing God glory? 
by accomplishing things he's given you to do. Jesus, thank you for these good people. And Lord, I, it's one of these messages where it's so fresh in me and so raw, I feel like the message gets a little more raw. <laughs> so we just want to come before you for a few moments. Hey, listen, let me talk to you. Uh, nothing weird's happening, to be honest with you. They're getting ready to sing a song, which is going to be a great song. But I just want you to kind of close your eyes for a minute and think with me. So here's what I would like to first to ask. Those of you that have never had a relationship with Jesus Christ, you can have that right now. How? The same thing I've been talking about all morning. You choose to surrender. You ask God to forgive you because you and I both have done a lot of things we're not proud of. And you ask God to forgive you of your sin. And he will. He does it. All you got to do is ask. He won't force it. You got to ask. And you can do that right now where you are. And you just simply say, Father, I need you to forgive me for my sin. Be my Savior. That's available to you. Let me talk to believers in the room right now. Are you living a send me kind of life? Are you? Do you have a send me father? When you pray to God, is it more about asking God what he can do for you or about how he could use you and send you? Everything I read about the life of holiness means we live sent lives. Everything I know and learning about who Jesus is is Jesus lived a sent life. When it's all said and done, do you want them to be able to say he brought glory to God by accomplishing the things God gave him to do? She brought glory to God by accomplishing the things God gave her to do. If so, then you and I both need to surrender. Surrender to God and let God have all of you. Would you think about that with me? Would you pray about that with me? Let's let Heather minister to us just for a minute.